Excuse me while I drop everything. Would you like to please sit down? Um, actually, I want to move this slightly to the side so that I can refer to it, but not have it in front of me. Okay, there we go. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, as we contemplate your word this morning, please open our hearts and our minds to your message, that through it we may draw closer to you and become more nearly the citizens of your kingdom that you want us to be. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So before we start, before I start, I want to tell you um, one small thing about me, which is not something I would normally do because I'm not comfortable talking about myself. But I have found it more of a challenge than usual preparing a sermon on this particular passage because there is a part in it which I find I really struggle with. Not the adultery part, so don't worry. <laughs> the anger, the anger part. When someone hurts me, I'm angry. I get angry. I think that's perfectly natural. But I'm not good with anger. I don't know what to do with it, in a, in a, how to express it in a non-destructive way. So I bottle it up and uh, let it become a resentment towards the person who's offended me so that I resent them not just for the offence, but also because they've left me with this difficult emotion to deal with as well. And it takes me a long time to get rid of the resentment. So when you are listening to what I'm saying, I just want you to bear in mind that I'm preaching to myself as much as to anyone else. And I feel an absolute fool standing here preaching about something that I have real difficulty practicing myself. I just want you to know that. Okay, so... When this passage opens, Jesus is on the mountainside near Capernaum and he's teaching his disciples, not just the 12 closest to him, but a wider audience of people um, who have uh, come to hear, specifically to hear what he has to say because they're interested. So he takes this opportunity to, to teach them some really quite challenging stuff. As citizens of the kingdom of God... Even though they're not Pharisees, they're not wealthy perhaps, not successful in a worldly sense, yet they are to be role models to other men. What they do, what they say, what they think matters. They are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. But what is the use of their saltiness if it's lost its flavor? What's the use of their light if it's obscured? What is the use of being an example if it's not a positive one. He wants them to recognize the primary attributes of being citizens of the kingdom of God, that humility is not a bad thing, that mourning the parlous condition of the world is not being a doom merchant, that meekness is not weakness, that a peacemaker is not a sissy afraid of confrontation. In fact, he wants them to understand that citizens that as citizens of the kingdom of God, the attitudes that they've been taught from their cradle have to undergo a major overhaul. It's not that the law of Moses or the word of the prophets is insufficient, far from it. It's that the interpretation that's been put on the law and the word of the prophets by the scribes and the Pharisees is insufficient. And in fact, unless their righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, 
they will not be any use in the kingdom of God. Now, this is difficult. This is challenging stuff. What does he mean? How can we possibly be more righteous than the Pharisees? They spend their entire lives studying to be righteous. And Jesus told them, you have been told that you shall not murder, you shall not commit murder, refers only to the act of murder. But think where the act of murder comes from. You don't just go out and to someone out of the blue and stick a knife into them or push them under a bus, unless you're a psychopath. Or I suppose um, a hired assassin might behave like that, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that we're not any of us hired assassins. Or psychopaths. Hmm. That being the case, my question still stands. Where does murder come from? Cain. Cain did not love his brother one day and decide to kill him the next. He allowed resentment towards Abel to build up in his heart. He dwelt on the hurts that had come his way and for which he blamed Abel. He let anger take root in his heart until Abel became not his brother, who like him had been lovingly created by God in his own image, equally precious to God, but someone else, someone called enemy. Now there are times, of course, when anger is truly justified, when it's used to point out that wrong is being done, when it's used to stop wrong being done again. Even Jesus got angry when the Pharisees made a big fuss because he had dared to heal some poor wretch on the Sabbath. Jesus was angry because of the hardness of their hearts. Their attitude was wrong, and it had to be put right. They had to be made aware of it. And when he threw all the merchants and the money changers out of the temple, he was angry because they had turned the house of God into a den of thieves. Wrong was being done, and it had to be stopped. But Jesus said that unjust anger is as bad as murder. What is unjust anger? Well, essentially, it's anger that isn't being used to right a wrong. It's anger that really doesn't have anything to do with the offense at all. It's anger that is being used to make us feel better when we've been hurt. Like, maybe you've been cooking meals for your family for years, and your life's partner says to you, let's have something tasty for dinner tonight. Well, you might be angry, hurt, offended. You might want to put cat's food in his sandwiches and see how tasty he finds that. But does, that, does such a piece of tactlessness really justify you to go on thinking how offended you are for the next day and the days and the weeks and the months to come until what was really a relatively minor offence becomes a source of persistent resentment in your heart. Surely, wouldn't we expect to be forgiven if we could ever be tactless enough to say something like that? When someone, maybe when someone at work, perhaps, interferes with something that you've been doing and changes it without so much as a by your leave, your first reaction might be anger, offence. But is it justified for you to then go and talk about that person behind their back and 
and dwell on that hurt for days and weeks to come until you see that person as an enemy instead of as a colleague. Surely we would expect to be forgiven if we ever did such a thoughtless thing. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we are supposed to set an example to show by the way we behave what the kingdom of God is like. What kind of example is it when we harbor anger long after an offense is passed, when that anger is out of all proportion to the offense, when the anger becomes a settled resentment against the person who has hurt us. It's an example that says, in the kingdom of God, if you hurt me, you are no longer my brother. You are no longer someone whom God has created and whom God loves. You are beyond his grace. You don't deserve eternal life. Murder means depriving someone of life in this world. How much worse is it to have an attitude of resentment that would deprive someone of life in the next world. The teachers of the law said that you, sh that, that you, you shall not commit adultery only means the actual physical act. But whether we commit the act of adultery or just, or just desire to commit the act, the attitude in our heart says that somebody whom we are facing, see somebody has no value to God except as an object of our desire. What does it matter if we commit the act or not? We have already devalued one of God's children. As Jesus interpreted the law, the kingdom of God governs not only our actions, but our attitudes as well. We can't pat ourselves on the back for not actually murdering someone. If we join in unkind gossip about them behind their back. We can't pat ourselves on the back for not actually committing adultery with someone. If we continue to regard that person as having no other value to God but as an object of our desire. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Well, that's all very well and good. But marriage entails certain promises being made. And citizens of the kingdom of God are expected to honor their promises. So if a marriage does have to end, if promises, those promises do have to be broken, it shouldn't arise out of a, an attitude that sees other people as disposable commodities to be used and abandoned at will. It shouldn't come from an attitude that holds some promises to be binding, but others not so much, depending on who you made the promise to, what words you used, whether your fingers were crossed at the time. Jesus expects citizens of the kingdom of God to be people of integrity, people who are faithful to their promises, to all their promises, not just the ones that mention the name of God people whose attitude of heart makes it unnecessary to swear they are telling the truth because they are truth-tellers. So how do we, as citizens of the kingdom of God, set the example that Jesus wants and expects? On another occasion, a Pharisee asked Jesus, Teacher, 
which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. God created every human being lovingly, individually, in his own image. And every one of his creation is infinitely precious to him. We cannot love our neighbors as ourselves if we do not hold that attitude in our hearts. And we cannot be the salt of the earth or the light of the world or good examples of the kingdom of God if we cannot love our neighbors as ourselves. Our first human reaction might be anger, desire, self-interest, but that doesn't have to be our final, lasting reaction. We have a choice. We can rise to Jesus' challenge. We can set aside our first reaction and concentrate on the fact that the object of our anger, our desire, the victim of our self-interest, is someone as precious and valuable to God as we are ourselves. It's not always easy. I already said that the anger thing in particular is something that I struggle with. Because quite often the thing that's been hurt is my pride, and that's really hard to forgive. I mean, if you remember Elvis Presley wailing on about not stepping on his blue suede shoes, forget blue suede shoes, do not step on my pride, lay off my self-image. But if we can do it, if we can try and keep on trying we can be the citizens of the kingdom of God that Jesus wants us to be. We can be the light that shines before men so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And I think we should really have a go at it. Amen. <laughs>